John Funderburg and Jen Towsey with our first chapter of the book Fire and Fury. How you doing, Jen? I'm doing great, John. I'm a little stuffy today, but we're going to get through it. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> that, that, that is going around. Um, the We are, first of all, we are going to change the format. Instead of trying to read every single page, we're going to pick out particular excerpts that we like from that particular chapter and then discuss it because there's so much information. Just like every day something changes in Trump administration, it's, it's hard to keep up. So, Jen, what was your first um, chapter that, or what, what did you want to highlight from the first chapter that you read? The um, first excerpt I pulled out were just the first two paragraphs because I felt like that sets like a good tone for – the um, attitude that the campaign had. Okay, so what's that? So I will start reading these two. So this is the first two chapters. On the afternoon of November 8, 2016, Kellyanne Conway, Donald Trump's campaign manager and a central, indeed starring, personality of Trump world, settled into her glass office at Trump Tower. Right up until the last weeks of the race, the Trump campaign headquarters had remained a listless place. All that seemed to distinguish it from a corporate back office were a few posters with right-wing slogans. Conway now was in a remarkably buoyant mood, considering she was about to experience a resounding, if not cataclysmic, defeat. Donald Trump would lose the election, of this she was sure, but he would quite possibly hold the defeat to under six points. That was a substantial victory. As for the looming defeat itself, she shrugged it off. It was Rens Priebus's fault, not hers. I just feel like that's so telling that, like, they felt like they were going to lose. And it was really just they were seeing it as a setup for this next phase of whatever they wanted to do in terms of like the Republican party, the Trump brand. So I think it just kind of sets off the tone of like the whole book of like they were, they were really caught off guard. Well, if you remember, um, first I want to say that I don't know if, I don't know if this is a cosmic thing or a God thing or a kind of way that life is just, ironic and funny Mm -hmm. but people's last names actually depict a lot of their personality (laughs) for for example bernie madoff bernie madoff with all of the money all the the money exactly (laughs) and so i as you were reading it i was like kelly ann conway wow you know she's just conning her way through this whole campaign and you're right they conned their way and they thought they were going to lose and they thought they were going to be able to kind of profit from that from creating a a a audience that is so far to the right red meat that they'll be able to um enrich their own pockets and her last name really depicts who she is she 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 was a con artist and they did a con artist job and if you remember their interviews right before the on election day they were totally spent they were they had already pretty much given up she had already started blaming prince Rebus for, for the uh, sorry, Rince Priebus, Rince Priebus, Rince Priebus for the for the loss, right? And so that's a good uh, metaphor for the beginning of the campaign. Well, I think it's just like straight from like the Trump playbook. You set this lofty, unattainable goal that promotes your brand. You know it's not going to happen, so you already set up the fall guy because it's not your fault. It's going to be someone else's fault. Yes. So they were already laying the groundwork. It's Rince Priebus. It's the GOP. So that when Hillary won, half their people would turn on the Democrats and the other half could turn on the GOP establishment. And 
they would get out. They would be the martyrs. And they could start these new careers, make gobs of money. You know? Uh, uh, this, this excerpt you chose also speaks to the very depth and darkness of their soul. Because yeah. it says that she was remarkably buoyant mood considering she was about to experience a resounding, if not cataclysmic defeat. So she didn't care about the campaign. She yeah. didn't care. Like Most people run for a campaign so that they can talk for the people. They can right. represent the people. And a lot of people are crushed after campaign because they feel that their vision and their desire to make America better is not going to be realized. But she could care less about that, according to this book. She was buoyant, yeah. <laughs> shrugged it off, was like, hey, it's Prince's fault, not mine. I'm good. Yeah, like they didn't care about the promises they were making to these people that were looking to them for hope and, you know, a happier future. They didn't care about that. And it just seems like I feel sorry for the people that believes in these people. Cause I know. The most, it seems the most gullible mm-hmm. person – I remember on Twitter, like on Twitter or Facebook, that I got into an argument with someone that was living in Texas because they honestly thought or they were told that Obama, Obama was going to be moving in troops to Texas to, to, take, to physically take over Texas. and Or, no, 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 no. The U.N. was going to come and go from door oh to door gosh. in Texas to disarm Texans for some particular reason. And they were serious. And I said to the person, will you please keep in contact with me so that when after Obama leaves office, we can meet back up and we can talk about how this never happened. They were so sure. They were like, I saw it on my block. I saw it here. Yeah. This is happening. Um, they're doing ex- joint exercises with, with, with the Army just so that they can take away our rights. I mean. Obama was coming for their guns. Yes. That's like his whole point of being president was to take the guns. Exactly. So my, uh, my excerpt from this chapter has something to do with what's kind of going on today in immigration. Mm-hmm. And my excerpt is from the, let's see, the pages aren't numbered, so I'm going to go with. <laughs> so weird. Yeah, no, so I'm going to, not the first page, not the second, not the third, but on the fourth. And the second paragraph I'm only going to read this one paragraph because one paragraph, uh, even though I, it, it'll leave me a chance not, not, not to say this famous word, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to – I may read it. Uh, my, my excerpt is from the first chapter is Trump had no real relationship with his either father or daughter. He had only a few conversations with Bob Mercer, who most, like, who most talked in monosyllables. Rebecca Mercer's entire history with Trump consisted of a selfie taken with him at Trump Tower. But when the Mercers presented their plan to take over the campaign and installed their lieutenant, Steve Bannon and Kelly Ann Conway, Trump didn't resist. He only expressed vast incomprehension about why anyone would want to do that. This thing, he told the Mercers, is so effed up. By every meaningful indicator, something greater than even a sense of doom shadowed what Steve Bannon called the broke dick campaign, a sense of structural impossibility. The reason I want to highlight this chapter is that it started off with Trump had no real, real relationship with his father. The entire immigration debate is that they want to bring over people that, that have merit, and they want to screen the people, and they only want the best and the brightest. When I just 
I just saw the history of Trump's family. Mm-hmm. And his grandfather came over here because he was trying to escape poverty at age 16. He was trying to take advantage of the gold rush in California. When he realized that he could make more money servicing the people that were trying to find the gold by opening up a brothel in California. Mm-hmm. And he was sending the gold nuggets that he got from, from, from pimping women and selling mm-hmm. flesh to, to his sisters in New York. And that's how they migrated to New York. As a matter of fact, his grandfather was banned from Europe because banned from Germany because he didn't do the necessary service time to serve in the military and so he could not come back. So he was a so he was kicked out of his own country for avoiding military service, came over to America to open up a brothel, and yes. that's and that's how he and that's how the Trump family began their riches. And and for him to stand up today and say that uh, immigrants are so and so so and so when his own family's history started started out in, in a very perilous way in a very negative way is is very very disingenuous. So that's what I wanted to choose for that. Um, I will say he he does seem to be in favor of white immigration. He doesn't what? He does seem to be in favor of white immigration, like from Norway. Remember, he said he's okay with Nor- people from Norway. <laughs> <clears throat> Even saying that, it, just, it sounds funny. Can't we get more people from Norway? They don't want to come over here. <laughs> they have they have good health care in Norway. Oh, I know. It, um, not only free health care, but they, they get free college, too. Yep. And... They have, I mean, they're, they're, anyway, they're, they're, they're people, you know who else gets universal health care, by the way, is Israel. They do. They have universal health care, which, and I mean, I don't want to get into this, but it pays for abortions. They pay for abortion in Israel. And I'm not saying that's right, but I find it so interesting that, like, a lot of times here, people are like, well, I don't want my tax dollars going to pay for abortions, but like. You're okay with us sending all this money to Israel, which, you know, yes. su- supports their economy, which pays for universal health care, which includes abortion. So, but that's just yes, my... Yes, exactly. That's just my opinion. And speaking of Norway, there was a tweet from... <laughs> even the name sounds funny. Is at Riot Women. <laughs> R-I-O-T. Oh, you saw it? Yeah. I, yeah, I, I where... followed them. For the listeners, or do you? I just, well, I guess I do too. For the <laughs> listeners, she tweeted out a video of rural Iowa voters laughed out loud as Republican Senator Joni Ernest tried to defend Trump. And they were, the, basically, the video was showing that they were asking her, why is his stance on immigration and so forth? And she was like, well, he does defend some countries, and, and they asked her which one, and she said Norway. Everyone broke out laughing. It's like <laughs> you're just perpetuating the stereotype. You're making so, it worse. Making it worse. Exactly. So anyway, um, what is your second excerpt from the first chapter? Um, if we flip back a page from where you uh-huh. just read, I'm still on this point of uh, the campaign situation. Okay. And this was following when they asked um, Trump if he wanted to be president, and he didn't answer. 
and starting to read. The point was there didn't need to be an answer because he wasn't going to be president. Trump's longtime friend, Roger Ailes, liked to say that if you wanted a career in television, first run for president. Now Trump, encouraged by Ailes, was floating rumors about a Trump network. It was a great future. He would come out of this campaign, Trump assured Ailes, with far more powerful brand and untold opportunities. This is bigger than I ever dreamed of, he told Ailes in a conversation a week before the election. I don't think about losing because it isn't losing. We've totally won. What's more, he was already laying down his public response to losing the election. It was stolen. Donald Trump and his tiny band of campaign warriors were ready to lose with fire and fury. They were not ready to win. And I think, I mean, that probably just lumps in with what I read before, but it's just that, like, I just feel like it's such a slap in the face to our democracy and to his voters, to his base, that they had this attitude of, like, we're going to sell you this dream, we're going to sell you our snake oil, and then we're going to up and leave town. I saw a um, the the Republican political commentary George Will. He said that he really is firmly against the Democrats impeaching Trump when we win the House in November, not because he wants to support Trump, but he wants the voters to fully feel the effect of their decision. Yes. He wants the voters to fully experience. Trump in all his glory every single day for four years so that when next time you get tempted to go this way again, you have a reference to go back to. Right. So I feel that your excerpt here is, again, along the lines of the Conway. I call it, I'm going to, I probably renamed this first chapter the Conway Con. Yes. <laughs> and they were just, Trump was the, the lead con man, and his minions, the Republican Party, really, they're, I have to give them credit, and I'm not, I'm not being sarcastic, but they're using him as a, as a way to achieve their objective of getting all these ridiculous, non-qualified conservative judges on, getting the conservative judge, Neil Gorsuch, who's just, I think he might be worse than... Uh, the person he replaced. Uh, uh, oh, Alito. Uh huh. Because, yeah. because at least Alito had a view, but he also had compassion. Whereas he would vote against the police overstepping their boundaries. Whereas Gorsuch won't do that. Right. Gorsuch. Well, and Alito is like conservative to the core, but he respected the Constitution, and he respected the other people on the bench, like. I mean, I mean, you've heard um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was like his best friend on the bench. Yes, but but this guy is this guy is like a, a comp- he's like one of the I don't know. Robert Lutlum is one of my favorite authors of all time, mm-hmm. and he he wrote a lot about how corporations are really running the world. And this guy is a corporate a corporate person. Yeah. If the, if the corporation or money is involved, then it's okay. And personal rights or responsibility is on you. If you are caught, like he actually voted against a truck driver who was suing because it was too cold or something, and he, and he had to leave his leave his truck or something. Right, like he couldn't sleep in the truck. Uh huh. And they fired him, and he ruled for the for the truck company. I mean, yeah. it's amazing how 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 his mind kind of 
configures that to come to that conclusion. So, yep. So your your last excerpt reminds me of the Kellyanne Con the Kellyanne Conway Kellyanne mm-hmm. Con. I would have to say my next excerpt is still uh, still along. It's actually along your line. Yes. Yeah, so my my excerpt is on the third page, I believe. I forgot now. I lost count. But when I say it, you'll know you, you'll, you'll know where it is. Mm-hmm. It was a operatic unraveling. This is right after, and I don't want to repeat what he said. This is right after the tape came out where he said, grab them by the boo-boo. So um, they're talking about that, where the, 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 the tape on the bus with Billy Bush. Mm-hmm. And it was an oper- operatic unraveling. So mortifying was this development that when Rince Priebus, the RNC head, was called to New York from Washington for an emergency meeting at Trump Tower, he could not bring himself to leave Penn Station. <laughs> he took two that. hours for the truck team to coax him across town. So Steve Bannon, if you see how he looks kind of sloppy, he said, bro, <laughs> he said, I may never see you again after today, but you got to come to this building and you got to walk through that front door. Oh, my gosh. It, this is, and what's bothering me is that the, there's a saying that my family, my family is very successful, by the way, and mm-hmm. not to, I'm saying that, to make this point that a lot of people can a lot of people when they hear a minority say something they'll say ah you just want the world to be handed to you or you just want you know but my family is highly successful I have people in I'm everyone in my family has at least a postgraduate degree not nice. just a degree a postgraduate degree everyone from my family I've I, my uncle is a heart surgeon his son owns a law firm in LA which is a pretty large law firm Another person in my family served as senator during the Reconstruction period of time. So I have a very successful family. Wow. My, own, my own grandfather worked in the White House with Teddy Roosevelt. So I'm not saying this to say that respecting something. But everyone in my family has always told me that in America, when you're a minority, you have to be two or three times as good just to be considered equal. And right. I feel like the Obama campaign had to be so tight and was so scrutinized. But this campaign was a total opposite. When you compare the two campaigns, they were night and day, and people just accepted it because they because they have the same skin color and and they, they represent supposedly they come from the same place you know uh, European you know German kind of um, and and they they're able to get away with so much so much stuff that the normal person couldn't get away with even right. even if even if they were Republican like Marco Rubio couldn't get away with this. It's true. Um, yeah. And as a matter of fact, it goes beyond skin color to cultural. That I don't think George Bush could have got away with this. I think that the culture of the I'm a good old boy from the South really trumps everything else. It trumps being white from the, from the Northeast. It yeah. trumps being white from the West Coast. It trumps being a minority. It trumps being everything else. That if you're a good old boy from the South who's willing to shoot from the hip and really disparage anybody that don't look like you, then you're an American. I, yeah. re- I remember when I was in the service, and I got the shock of my life when I was hanging around like 15 guys. We were all sitting around, you know, I don't know, talking trash. I was only one of the black guys there. And one guy was like, yeah, I got a real American girl. I was like, huh? I said, like, what does that mean? <laughs> they said, yeah, I got a real American girl, blonde hair, blue eyes. I was like, well, my girl American too. <laughs> and they was like, no, no, I ain't a real American. I'm a real American girl. And I, I was shocked to hear that. 
And I didn't know that that, that, that the mentality was. So I guess I'm going right. a, little, a little thing of that there, my excerpt says that America really tolerated a lot from this campaign and still today because they come from that cultural South that is some somehow supposed to be real America. I know. I don't, I don't understand that because I'm from the South. And so really I know queer. that, yeah, I'm from South Carolina. <laughs> well, I didn't know that. Yes, the deep South. And so I know this mentality. I grew up with it. Um, and it's like very pervasive and it's hard. It's in the DNA. And I don't say that as an excuse, but it's like, that's how deep it goes. And as a white person in the South, you have to be aware of it and you have to work to change it because just going along with the flow is going along with that mentality and shaking your head when someone says yeah my all-american girl is blonde hair blue eyes you have to like no that's you you have to fight it and um it's like those generational curses like they're prone to repeat if you don't acknowledge them and Uh change them but um and i think this is what you're talking about that's that core of white supremacy it goes beyond just skin color because George Bush was a white guy I mean but he wasn't a racist now definitely we can have a whole podcast about his uh, policies and things and how those impacted people of color but in general he didn't see his whiteness as a cause to be celebrated whereas I think that's what's so different about Trump and that's why he his base he kind of brought up this these people that have always been there but haven't been as vocal and haven't had as much of a platform. And it's really hard, but it's also, I mean, it's disturbing for me because I knew these people were there, but I had this hope that as those older generations were dying, like my grandfather and his generation, as they, they started to die, um, that those... Um, beliefs and thought patterns would die with them and that doesn't seem to be the case and it's really horrifying to uh to know that that's a big part of what carried this trump um success and that a lot of it i think like we said before was a backlash against obama Uh uh-huh in large part because obama was black People talk all the time. Well, it wasn't. No, it was because he was black. It was. And not only black, but I keep telling people that that like he was black. He was unabashedly black. Like he didn't change his name to you know like Steve Steve Jones. He was Barack Obama. He didn't he didn't like try to whitewash his his heritage. He he talked. He he was who he was. Whereas. Um, some people try to cross the color barrier by by whitewashing their heritage. Right. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, this reminds me. I know we're like kind of going off on a tangent, but did you read that um, that piece by is it um, Tanahisi Coates in the Atlantic about Trump being the first white president? Did you read that? It was a couple no, months haven't. ago. No, you, you had to send that to me. I I, I, don't, I, I never saw it. It was. Um, it's called like um, Donald Trump is the first white president, and he wrote this 
this it's a very long piece and I recommend you guys, like the listeners to go and find it it's on the Atlantic.com and I'll send it to you John but well he, if, you, if you if you tweet it to me I can tweet it on my on my on my thread so people people can yeah I'll do that look at it but do you mind if I read like a little excerpt from it, it goes absolutely with, yeah go ahead because I was thinking about it when I was reading through these chapters today but he talks about this and I'm going to read what he wrote. He says, To Trump, whiteness is neither um, notional nor symbolic, but is the very core of his power. In this, Trump is not singular. But whereas his forebears carried whiteness like an ancestral talisman, Trump cracked the glowing amulet open, releasing its eldritch energies. The repercussions are striking. Trump is the first president to have served in no public capacity before ascending to his perch. But more telling... Trump is also the first president to have publicly affirmed that his daughter is a piece of ass. The mind sees is trying to imagine a black man extolling the virtues of sexual assault on tape, fending off multiple accusations of such assaults, immersed in multiple lawsuits for allegedly fraudulent business dealings, exhorting his followers to violence, and then strolling into the White House. But that is the point of white supremacy to ensure that which all others achieve with maximal effort, white people, particularly white men, achieve with minimal qualification. Barack Obama delivered to black people the hoary message that if they work twice as hard as white people, anything is possible. But Trump's counter is persuasive. Work half as hard as black people and even more is possible. Wow, that's, once again, that's twice as hard. There goes, flashes again. Yeah, um, yeah when you said that. that yeah, that's totally true. and. The but the, the thing about Trump, which makes him an enigma, is is that I don't believe at the core he actually feels what he is saying. But I believe that his core is so dark that this is the only avenue he can express it. If it was, if if he could do the same, achieve the same popularity, and the same vulgar vulgarness or being as vulgar, saying something else or representing another core group in America, he would do that to express, he just, he, he loves conflict. That conflict doesn't have a base, but he loves the idea of conflict. Like some people just want to argue. Mm-hmm. They just they just want to, they're, they don't, they're not feeling good until you feel bad. It kind of, you know, reminds me of, you ever watch Sopranos? Um, yeah, a long time ago. Do you, there was a scene between Tony and his sister, and Tony and his sister have been going at it for years. His sister really tried to get herself together one time by going through anger management. She was going through an anger management course, and she was getting a. She was at this point she was married to Bobby, and she was getting mm-hmm. a, getting herself. Bobby had basically told her that if you don't control your anger, okay, that's what it was. She was caught on TV fighting a lady at a soccer at her kid's soccer game. She was like on top of her wailing order. And Tony Soprano was like, you can't bring this attention to the family. And he told Bobby, you better control your wife or else it's going to affect you. And Bobby said, listen, Janice, my my ex-wife, which had died in a car accident, she wasn't like this. We didn't argue in this house. We had a peaceful house till you came in here. You're bringing this confusion. If you don't deal with it, then you're going to have to go. Janice loved her lifestyle. She didn't want to work, so she loved being married to Bobby. So mm-hmm. she began to go through this anger management class, and she began to get better. And she was telling Tony that, hey, you know, there's no sense in being upset. I can talk things out. I can do things in a normal way. And Tony was frustrated because he was trying to control himself. So Tony looked at her, and Tony was like, okay, all right. And 
the next day, they all had dinner, and Tony began to really antagonize her by teasing her about her son, who was homeless at the time, and set her off to the point where she was so upset, she flew off the handle, and Tony just walked out the house so happy that he was able to bring someone down to his level of misery, to where he was. And that's where I think Trump is, is that he has no base of, he has no pure motive. He just feels miserable, and he wants to bring people down. He's partially because he's, I think he's a sex addict. Um, Well, not sex per se, but I think he's, I think he likes to degrade people, and yeah, sex, and, and he, and, and sex is another way of doing that. Uh, he likes to degrade people. He likes to ramrod through people. He likes to just abuse people emotionally because he feels so bad about himself. So the only avenue he can express that is the alt right. The alt right loves to do the same thing, and and that's why I feel that if there was another way to express his anger, he would do that. But the only way he could do it is through the alt right because they have the same kind of. Um, they have the same. I'm not talking about conservatives. The alternative right, the racist right, right. have the same kind of uh, lifestyle, same kind of views. Absolutely. So that was your second excerpt. Yeah. So, or, that, or, or was that your third? No, that was my second. So, so you've done two, and I've done two. I only have two. So why, why don't you do your third, and then I'll do my last. Okay. So I was just gonna read the last. Like, couple paragraphs. Is that what? Okay. Um, so this is them kind of talking through what's going to happen after this election when Donald Trump loses. Uh-huh. So it says, Steve Bannon would become the de facto head of the Tea Party movement. Kellyanne Conway would be a cable news star. Prince Rebus and Katie Walsh would get their Republican Party back. Melania Trump could return to inconspicuously lunching. <laughs> that was the trouble-free outcome they awaited on November 8, 2016. Losing would work out for everybody. Shortly after 8 o'clock that evening, when the unexpected trend, Trump might actually win, seemed confirmed, Don Jr. told a friend that his father, or DJT as he called him, looked as if he had seen a ghost. Melania, to whom Donald Trump had made his solemn guarantee, and that was that he would lose, was in tears and not of joy. There was, in the space of little more than an hour, in Steve Bannon's not unamused observation, a befuddled Trump morphing into a disbelieving Trump and then into a quite horrified Trump. But still to come was the final transformation. Suddenly, Donald Trump became a man who believed that he deserved to be and was wholly capable of being the President of the United States. So what do you think? I just, like, I mean, this is, like, the epitome of ego of course like he would go through those range of emotions and come out and like his final emotion would be that belief of yes i do deserve this because that's what he's believed his whole life because being who he is and where he is and the things that have been given to him and the people who've protected him and done his you know dirty work for him I mean, I'm sure he felt like this was this is going to go the same way as everything else in my life. I'll get what I want. And people will love me. He wants to be adored. We know that. And, yeah. It's the id and the ego right there. This, so. this rem- once again, this reminds me of art imitating life, life imitating art. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, once again, this is... I have a lot of pop culture references because it fits. 
Yeah. Did, did, did you ever watch The Wire? Yes. Good, because the there was <laughs> me too. There was a part where Avon was going to war with Marlo, mm-hmm. and Avon was going to war with Marlo. Or I'm trying to think. No. I think Avon. Yeah, yeah. Avon was going to war with Marlo because of a perceived wrong. And Avon was like, this didn't even happen that way. And mm-hmm. the other guy, one of Avon's lieutenants said, it don't matter. <laughs> if we go to war on a lie, we go to war on that lie. We stay on that lie. And, you know, it, in other words, they were saying, well, really, what really happened doesn't matter because we're at war now. And we're going to stay at war because this is why we're at war. If it's a lie, it's a lie. If it's not, it's not. We're going to stay at war. And that reminds me of the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. That they went to campaign on a lie. <laughs> they just had to stay. Now they have to stay there <laughs> because it's already there now. And it's like their pri- at that point, their pride's at stake. So to yeah. back off at that point would be their pride. It doesn't matter at that point if it's right or wrong. It's all about the image totally agree and so is all so they have to so now they have to so now they're leading from behind and they're trying to ramp up when they when most campaigns like Romney campaign was ready to go tonight he he thought he was getting elected he was mm-hmm. he had everything ready he had the transition ready he had his website I remember he had his website all ready to go it was already up and he the moment he lost he cut off everybody's credit cards and said that's it game over yeah. So, yeah, they, it was two totally different campaigns. They weren't ready. They weren't prepared. And this book kind of elevates that. And that's a, and, that, and that's a good excerpt that you, that you brought up. I was actually going to bring up the same thing, but I found something else. Okay. That was such and a great I, analogy, by the way. It is. I, I, I love when, when art imitates life. Life imitates art. And what the, the, I'm only going to read one paragraph. Many candidates for president have made a virtue of being Washington outsiders. In practice, this strategy merely favors governors and other senators. Every serious candidate, no matter how much he or she dishes Washington, relies on Beltway insiders for counsel and support. But with Trump, hardly a person in his innermost circle has ever worked in politics at the national level. His closest advisors have not worked in politics at all. Throughout his life, Trump had few close friends of any kind. But when he began his campaign for president, he had almost no friends in politics. The only two actual politicians with whom Trump were close to were Rudy Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani and Chris Christie, and both men were in their own way peculiar and isolated. And to say that he knew nothing, nothing at all, about basic intellectual foundations of the job was a co- comic, I want to change that to cosmic, understatement. Yes. Early in the campaign, and the producers were they see. I'm gonna stop there. Um, this kind of is gonna end. We're gonna end the podcast on this. In that, the first chapter is just is summarizing. Basically, talked about Trump really didn't want to win. First of all, and he was trying to just prepare. He was using the campaign to promote his his own self. And the evidence of it were the lack of people that he hired, the lack of everything involved. And America pretty much went to war on that lie and didn't care that of anything. They, they just wanted to 
stick a finger in the eye of of, of the liberal world who who, mm-hmm. who had elected a a a president that that did, that they felt didn't represent their their way that they wanted Washington represented. Yeah. It's just yeah. It's just so like. It's just like chaotic, con. Like you said, it's a con, and they pulled it off. And we're living with it. So what did you do the night of the election? How did you, what did you do? What, what kind of emotions did you go, did you go through? Well, it was pretty, I was with a friend at, we went to um, family meal. It was like, oh, let's just go sit at the bar, have a drink, watch the re- returns come in. It'll be great. Hillary's going to win. And those first few returns came in and you're like, okay, it's fine. It's, you know, she's going to win. And then. Like, as the night wore on, it just, I felt just more and more, like, this, like, heaviness and this sadness, like, like, descending on me. It was really, I don't remember ever feeling that um, emotional about a campaign, about an election outcome. I mean, I've been upset before, I've been disappointed, but this was just, like, a whole other level of sadness and disbelief I definitely went through the entire like all the stages of grief probably three times in 24 hours like every time like they would start over again like replaying I'd be like no so so who are you with you you were some friends or yeah I was just with some friends now were they politically inclined yeah they were we were all like democrats they felt the same way it was just rough see I had to like my wife always panics over everything. Mm-hmm. So I was, the whole night I was like, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. <laughs> it started getting like less and less okay. And it started getting worse and worse and worse. I was like, it's okay, it's okay. I was like, oh my God, it's okay, it's okay. It's like, oh my God. And she was, I mean, so I had, to, I had to deal with my own emotions and to deal with hers at the same time, trying to <laughs> calm her down. Then I started saying, whoa, this, this, this isn't okay. I mean, this is we not just a joke. barely... We just barely got Virginia. What, what's up with Florida and North Carolina? And and um, I was following this website who, who who thought they were able to understand the votes on Vox. It was uh, so. It was just. But where were you? Which bar were you at? If I mean, I mean, was it downtown Frederick? Oh, it was Family Meal. So you were downtown Frederick. Yeah, downtown Frederick. Okay. Maybe if I say that enough, they'll compass some. <laughs> drinks the podcast for there one day <laughs> so yeah so um yeah when whenever there's like big events like that i can't i can't be out because i'm on twitter and i have like oh yeah i'm really active on twitter and it's and like super bowl nights or championship anything big i'm at home in front of my computer because i'd rather share it yeah with my twitter twitter crew <laughs> you know and then uh because we have a national, we have an international kind of crew going on. So, all right. Well, um, we'll hit chapter two uh, w- w- um, very soon this week. It'll drop probably a couple days. And I hope you guys enjoyed this uh, podcast. Any last words, Jen? No, just thanks, John. This has been so much fun. I'm looking forward to the next one. Yeah, I, I think this format kind of works better than trying to read everything because there's so much information. You, so find, much. you feel, yeah, you feel like you want to comment on everything. You, be, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. well, I, I think it's better to just summarize the chapters, and it, I think it's easier to listen to too. I think so too. All right. I well, agree. until next time, we are out. Okay. Bye. Bye.